I've been practicing my pronunciation of this word. This is a word that's been haunting me for years. And I have a feeling will continue to haunt me. You know, you just have to know yourself. You have to know yourself in life. And there are certain pronunciations that are always going to get me. I'm just never going to be able to run up those pronunciation hills in the ways that I dream. One day, one day I will not slow down to say the word vulnerable. See, I tried to say it quickly. Vulnerable. If I say it at, at a slower speed, if I act as if I'm a metronome, then I can say it. Vulnerable. Beautiful. And when I speed up that little hill, it all goes to hell. Here's another word for you. Ready? Terroir. 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 Welcome to the Sick Palette Podcast. I'm your host, Deepa Shreeder. We are going to change up the structure of this podcast just a little bit. Nothing too crazy. But I realized that when we just jump into the wine review um, and we don't go into any of the research that I found or, or we, don't, we don't talk a little bit of background or have a little bit of, you know, um, cultural context, I, I feel like we're doing, we're doing this talk about wine a disservice. Especially when I'm thinking about why am I talking about wine here on the Sick Palette Podcast? What, what was the premise of this, right? Essentially, the premise of this is um, taking wine and, and looking at it, not just from a class perspective, but also from the perspective of me being an immigrant. Um, and why wine becomes something that, that is, um, that can be, can be, doesn't mean that it is, can be a little bit of a fine dining gatekeeper. You know, who, who are the people that get to produce wines? Um, what countries get to be quote unquote elevated cuisine? And when we restructure how we look at wine, what flavors go with wine, and who gets to talk and who gets to be an authority about wine, then maybe then maybe we get to talk about food and the food industry in general uh, at a more egalitarian place, right? So that means if we're talking about a wine review and why we're excited about a certain bottle and da 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 we need to talk a little bit about a word I'm going to have to get used to just never landing and y'all are just going to have to get used to me saying badly. And will I lose followers and subscribers? Terroir. <laughs> So the first segment of this podcast is going to be terroir talk. <laughs> Shut it off. Turn the podcast off. Get out of here. <laughs> Shut it down. That's going to be the first first topic, okay? And the second topic, the second section, moreover, is going to be the wine review itself. So we can get into the like subjective opinion 
in that second half. Um, and what I'm going to do to help kind of sort of annotate it is um, down on the post itself on Substack, we'll, we'll have the timestamps of when that first section is uh, beginning and ending and when that second uh, section is beginning and ending. And you can, you can then decide, you know, if you're like, listen, I'm, I'm not down with this, this sort of quote unquote background and giving me a little bit of that R and D. And if I, I swear to God, I cannot hear her say terroir, terroir, terroir. Hmm. It's not improving. It's worse, right? It's worse. Tough to hear. Um, that's going to be uh, something then you can sort of be like, you know what, let's let's just get into the wine review. Um, and it'll also be interesting to see what y'all feel about uh, the new structure of the podcast. Please give it like a few two or three episodes in, you know, let's let let's get let's get some. ooh, let's do some foreshadowing. Let's get our wine legs. I'm using that wrong. Let's get our wine legs under us. See how we swim. Sure, wine education. I can do that. Um, so today we are talking about a Chilean wine that I am really excited about. Uh, but I wanted to kind of look at Chilean wine uh, as general as I can, which is a silly thing to say uh, because, first off, it's very hard to generalize any country. Uh, but especially with a country that has such a, such a, like, really, like, deep difference of topography. You know, um, Chile is one of those South American countries uh, that really kind of gives you extreme climates because it's, because of the way it's positioned, you are you are really sort of um, having to deal with extremities, you know, quote unquote wine country, right? It is a wine country um, that you you don't necessarily have to deal with in other uh, quote unquote wine countries. Um, I keep saying quote unquote not to not to sort of essentially be like, how is this a wine country? Blah, blah, blah. It's more to be like, what is a wine country, right? At this point, almost every country that produces wine should be called a wine country. You know what? Let me, let me redo that sentence. Every country that produces wine should be a wine country, right? Um, so let's get into it. So when we talk about the Chilean wine history, it's, it's also considered, right, a new world wine. And by new world, we're not talking about, you know, the 1970s boom of California. That's a new world. We're talking 16th century. <laughs> the 1500s, y'all, when, uh, when essentially the Spanish started their conquesting, okay? So, I think that's also interesting. The word new world, these are this is this is also um 
ways, subtle ways I feel about when we talk about uh, gatekeeping in the fine dining world. New World wines span from the 1500s all the way to the 1970s. Isn't that nuts to think about? That because, because it wasn't rooted in Europe, it's new world, right? And you're, you might be saying, well, it's because those countries haven't been discovered yet. Well, well, that, that's already a problematic stance, right? Because the point is these countries, these uh, cultures have been existing for eons. And when we say things like this is a new world, we're just taking on the stance of a Euro-Western point of saying, uh, the Americas are new world just because they weren't quote unquote discovered by the people who for the longest time wrote our history. So I think when we talk about Chilean wine, there's there's already kind of sort of, I, I feel a type of way. And I, I, you know what, if I was Chilean, I'd probably feel really a type of way when people talk about this being a new world wine since the 1500s. Now let's really get into it, okay? So the other thing about Chilean wine is that it is a home to some of the world's oldest vines, meaning older than some European countries doesn't mean oldest wine culture. Okay. That, that is, that is really old. And if we really want to take it there, we can talk about how fermentation really got popping in Egypt way, way, way before anybody in France or Italy was doing it. Well, that's a separate topic for another day. But the reason why it is actually home to some of the world's oldest vines is because in the 1800s there was almost like a like a global decimation of the world's oldest vines um due to a very creepy little bug that still is like a problem uh phylloxera did i say that right phylloxera so essentially a phylloxera is a small insect that can ruin the roots of grapevines. And in the 1800s, it ran through Europe, okay? Just destroying vineyards. And because there were vineyards starting to crop up in Chile in the 1500s, now the oldest vines uh, were in Chile, not in Europe. Um, and these are vines that didn't need to be grafted, right? So what also happened because of the topography of Chile, because it was able to sort of be isolated in ways that the phylloxera were, it was, it was more challenging a way to get to those vines. Um, the natural isolation of the Chilean topography uh, made sure that those grapevines could thrive. And so when it came time for it, Chile was one of those countries that helped Europe out. So that new world was helping out a little bit of that old world. 
And now these, the vines that have been like some of the oldest in the world are 500 years old, which are still newer than the oldest vines, but those vines don't exist in the truest fashion. Those are grafted. When we're talking about a grafted vine, we're talking about getting a vine that uh, is either from America or Americas, right? And sort of taking, you know, those preserved cuttings from Europe and essentially grafting a new product. So it's got a little bit of those old vine vibes, but you're getting, essentially you're getting a new kind of grape. So since the phylloxera couldn't get busy on Chile, you've got, you've got now old, ungrafted, you know, uncut, 100% pure vine action happening in Chile. Um, so so that's, that's really what's going on when we're talking about a Chilean wine. Chilean wines also haven't really had the type of popularity be, in my head in the 1800s. If suddenly you're like, oh, okay, well, the purest vines in the world are now coming, coming from a South American country, you would think to yourself, okay, then that country was like maybe popping off and just going to have like a huge like wine boom marketing wise. But it is only, you know, as of the last 30, 40 years, 40 years is honestly being a little generous, say 30 years, where Chilean wine is being recognized um, for this product. Now, that's just global marketing, right? Because it sounds like they've been having some outstanding product for, for a long time, but we weren't able to really sort of talk about it in the way that a lot of these winemakers, you know, have, have struggled to have that sort of global authority. It's just, I think this is just an interesting way to remember that all of these terms are nonsense. When we're talking about the quality of a grape, when we're talking about wine cultures, and we're talking about, honestly, terroir, terroir, a lot of it is just sort of like made up stuff that we've decided that this is a way to qualitatively talk about wine. Because if we are having that terroir talk, maybe that soil's real good in Europe, but they're not dealing with, you know, their, their old vines purely. If we want to go there, that's Chile. Do you see what I'm saying here? Are we, are we on the same page here? I just want to, to keep, keep all of our eyes, keep your third eye open, dog, you know, (laughs) because wine, wine is something really special, but it isn't beholden to one certain group. And I think the more we look into the wine history uh, and wine culture in general, I think the more we're going to really find that like 
this is this is about made up constructs, just like most things are in food, in culture, in economics, in finance, <sighs> in everything. Um, but I'm I'm excited to talk to talk more about it. I'm hoping you know as the weeks progress, we can we can really sort of um, get get deeper and deeper into it. Okay. Let's get into the wine review. All right, we're talking about today, Hamon, Hamon, twenty twenty one. This is coming from um, Rogue Vine, uh, which is which is a, a winery that that has has like a, a pretty cool story of of how they started. We'll get into that in a second. This wine is um, coming from the Itata Valley. Uh, Itata Valley is on the southern end of Chile. So essentially what that means is it's got a lot of like cool climate um, exposure. It's got, it's got because it's uh, positioned to the Pacific Ocean, it gets a lot of cool currents. But it's also an exposed region, so it does get some intense sun. Honestly, it kind of sounds like a dream, right? Like you get you get the cold climate, cold wind coming from the Pacific, but you still you still get your sun. What a dream! Um, it's also home to some of Chile's oldest uh, vines from the fifteen fifties, and I actually picked this wine up because shout out to Brody Park Market, my South Austin wine shop that. Truly, truly, they are just always finding gems. Um, but they they really were like, hey, you got to try this. I tried this and immediately was like, oh, okay, this is what we're reviewing. Uh, so Rogue Vines uh, started in 2011. It's two winemakers, uh, Leo Arazo and Justin Decker, who is actually an expat from Indiana. Um, they started this this winery basically in a one-car garage and kind of uh, grew from there. Their their whole thing is they don't want to have any interferences. They don't want to they don't want to course correct a wine. There is it looks like it says little on their page it says little to no sulfur addition. So, you know, it, it sounds like sometimes sometimes that's that's what's happening, but their their mission is to essentially um focus focus on making wines um from the rural farming communities that they support um it, it it sounds like they are on a mission to to really really kind of show off that that old wine old vine energy from their quote unquote new world country um so that's pretty cool this guy, we're talking about an orange wine, Hamon Hamon, um, which is essentially it's a hundred percent skin fermented Muscatel. So a Muscatel is like a, it's an originally a sherry grape. It comes from Muscat grapes. Uh, it, we're not talking like real, real like 
you know, big AVB energy here. It's it's 13%. It's definitely, it's a natural wine, but it's it's not as, I would say, it doesn't fall into that, you know, 10 to 12% that you see a lot of uh, natural wines available to us. So it's it's got a little bit more heat on it, 13%. But I'll tell you what, guys. This is something... This is something that is going to feel like you're drinking a white tea in the best way possible. Obviously, have this thing chilled. Um, first thing I got, the nose of it, it smells like tangerines. It smells like tangerines. And, and knowing that it came from like a sherry grape, in my head, I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be a dessert wine. Because when you smell it, you're like, okay, super floral, um, but has like almost that like that bitter sweetness nose to it. So you're like, okay, I think I know what this is going to be, right? And then when I looked at my wine glass, I was like, all right, it, this got some like legs on it. So let's talk about wine legs for a second. Wine legs are the droplets that kind of show up on your glass, on the inside of it, okay? And the reason why, um, they're also called wine tears. And the reason why it's kind of important to take a look at them is if you swirl your glass around and you just start to see like just little droplets that hang out right above where the liquid is and they, they start to drop down towards the liquid, and you're like, what is that? That's like an actual like phenomenon that happens because it's like uh, actively uh, evaporating the alcohol. So as soon as you open your wine and you pour your wine in a glass, that alcohol is immediately starting to evaporate. Obviously not at like a, you know, it's not like, oh shit. <laughs> You better drink it before it evaporates. But it's essentially like, okay, this is this is something that is happening due to its um, exposure to oxygen. And if you see these wine droplets at a higher rate, you can expect to, most of the time, expect a higher ABV. I saw some droplets. It wasn't like so crazy. Uh, what I did see is... Um, they were slowly dropping into the liquid. Um, and that's because it, it's a wine that's a little bit more viscose, you know? Viscosity? Guys, we're getting there. Um, and I, in my head, I was like, all right, so we're dealing with something that has a little bit more sugar in it due to all my context clues here. So here I am being like, okay, I know Muscatel is originally from Muscat grapes, and this is all signs are pointing to a dessert wine. I'm, I'm safely here in this region. I am wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. All right, that tangerine lemon on the nose. Um, yeah, it's got sherry origins. It's like you're drinking a cold jasmine tea. 
there is a pleasant bitterness and perhaps that sugar content exists but it's not it's not going to exist like in the palate it is so pleasant with that slight stringency that a white tea will give you like a jasmine tea that's what you're getting on it it is made for saffron i'll tell you it's made for saffron it's made for things um that are slightly fermented i wanted to have biryani with this wine that would have been perfect just give me a lamb biryani and give me several bottles of hamon hamon. I think that's that's just the match that we're looking for here. Tamarind test. Ha. Huh. Okay. With the tamarind test, I'm going to say it's more on a no. Because it's giving you I I feel like when it comes to saffron, I don't want uh, saffron to mix with my tamarind, and I don't want tamarind to mix with my saffron. Both flavors I love, but never the two shall meet. You know, I, I, I have tried back in the day. I have like tried to basically make like tamarind syrups, and I was like, okay, man, I have I have a great saffron with me, so why don't I just add it to it? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's just two flavors who are very excited to kind of sort of be the stars on their own. You mix them together and it's just, it's, it's not pleasant. It's not great. You're just sort of like, ah, I don't know where I'm going with this. It just, it tastes like a mess. So I'm going to say no on tamarind for this. Go, go towards saffron. Go towards biryani. Run towards biryani. I mean, always run towards biryani, right? But especially with this bottle of wine, that's, that's what you're looking for. Um, it, is, it is one of those wines where I am really excited that it exists. I've not had anything like it this summer because it is, it is a thicker wine, which I don't necessarily enjoy in the summer. At least I thought I wouldn't, right? It's, um, it just, it just feels like it's going to be tougher to taste. And then when you have it, when you have it, you realize that having a wine to chew on, even in the summer heat, it can be pleasant. It can be pleasant if it's just sort of true to itself. And that's just what it kind of tastes like. It just kind of tastes like, you know, these people went out to to make something that tasted like a region that they were really into. But it is singularly unique to everything else I've had this summer. So I'll say this. In your metaphorical Yeti cooler at this pool party, I wouldn't have it in at the pool party. I would have it at like a late night summer party where someone has created, someone took the three days it takes to make proper biryani. 
and it and we're just going for like an outside dinner party late night vibes people you really fuck with that's that's the kind of wine so yeah it does belong in in the summer category of wines happy to have it i don't want it near a pool i don't want it near tamarind and i truly love this wine wow Yeah. Didn't pass the Tamron test, and I love it. Hard to say, but it's true. <laughs> All right. I think, I think we've reviewed this wine. I hope you go and get it. Um, there will be the website, Rogue Vines website, uh, in the post. And uh, let's talk about what's coming up. What is coming up in the sick palette world? In the Sick Palette multiverse. Can we say that now? We got day parties. We got supper club report. We got many different factions. Um, we're getting closer and closer to talking about those projects that I've been hinting at. We can, we can, soon, we can soon really get into that. So that's, that's not helpful to you to just hear that projects exist, but they do. Okay. Um, newsletters. Two newsletters are coming out. I think the Wild Fermentation newsletter is going to come out before the Jaggery newsletter. Um, and that that goal of that newsletter is, is to be early next week. Um, the next day party, which is, of course, the Austin Supper Club faction uh, that I host. And if you're, if you're in the industry in Austin and you want to be on the supper club list dm me and email me or or one or the other um it's a supper club that doesn't cost any money but it the entrance fee is a bottle of wine um it's just a place for us to chill and eat some food that hopefully tastes like nothing else you've had and sometimes and sometimes we collaborate so uh, the next supper club, not day party, but the next supper club is going to be a collaboration with my friend and genius uh, chef. We got Ava Pendleton from Austin Cueco, and we're going to make basically a a take on a South Indian and Malaysian thali. Should be interesting, and which may or may not be previewing for uh, a bigger project. But we'll get into that when we get into that. Uh, thank you guys. Thank you guys for sticking around. Um, and if if you're thinking about, hey, let me try this little paid paid subscription idea. What are the benefits of it? Well, not only do you get more recipes, especially the ones that are more complicated, uh, like probably one of the most popular ones being the the roast chicken uh, with banana leaves and tamarind. Um, you're also going to be starting to get bonus podcast episodes. And especially when we start talking about a certain TV review podcast that is in the works. That's just going to be for the paid people, Okay. That's going to be paid subscribers are going to be able to hear all of the takes on the bear <laughs> uh, with the special guests. So 
that's coming up and that means maybe you maybe you get a free trial try a paid subscription on for size and see if you like it okay guys i'm out of here um i'll talk to you very soon goodbye <laughs>